Welcome to the Fantasy Throwdown Podcast, bringing you the latest updates from the world of sports, gambling, and pop culture. Because you can't have a show without hot takes or a Tiger King meme these days. Know what I'm saying? Now, with over 200 episodes and ready to get after it again, here's your host, Dwayne Callender. Hello and welcome to the show, everyone. Busy weekend of sports across the board. We had baseball, basketball, hockey uh, going on with Stanley Cup playoffs slash qualifiers. I don't know how you're going to actually uh, quantify uh, what to call this uh, uh, playoff uh, season that hockey is conducting. Uh, soccer as well abroad. Uh, so uh, quite a bit going on and, you know, of course, uh, while everything is not normal because we have uh, this current pandemic going on, we did get a sense of normalcy in that we, of course, had a summer story about the Mets and things that go caca involving the Mets because, as we all know, the Mets are a poorly run organization that calamities seem to happen to Every year, it doesn't matter what happens, something has to go awry for the Mets. So, of course, with the resumption of baseball, something had to go awry uh, involving the New York Mets. So, let's get right down to it because Major League Baseball has a host of issues on its hands at the moment. But at least let's take a little bit of levity over the weekend to talk about the Mets. On Sunday, this is what happened. You had a no-show from Joanna Cespedes at the ballpark so that for their 1 p.m. game against the Braves, uh, no one knew where Cespedes was. None of the teammates knew. None of the coaching staff knew. At 1.26 p.m., the Mets released a general statement from general manager Brody Van Wagenen. As of game time, Ioannis Cespedes has not reported to the ballpark today. He did not reach out to management with any explanation for his absence. Our attempts to contact him have been unsuccessful. Now, a number of media members jumped to the conclusion of, oh my God, Ioannis Cespedes is missing. He may be in danger or or possibly dead because the Mets wouldn't put out a statement like that that sounded so dire if it wasn't so incredibly serious that they haven't heard from him at all. Here's the thing that the Mets left out. Ioannis Cespedes cleaned out his hotel room, left the facility entirely. They didn't mention any of that. So if it, this is why the media jumped to the conclusion that uh, Cespedes was in danger because, you know, they figured his stuff was still there, so technically he should still be there. If his hotel room is cleaned out, that would basically tell you that he left the hotel willingly and voluntarily without any issues. Now, from my perspective, what was my reaction when I heard that uh, press release? My reaction was, did the Mets check out the strip clubs in Atlanta? Because that's that's exactly where I was assuming uh, Cespedes was. Given uh, Cespedes' history of... Uh, partying, random injuries, 
things that no one really quite understands what's going on. Two heel injuries that, again, are quite random. The fact that he missed a, a significant portion of last season uh, due to being injured by a running away from a boar on his ranch. Yes, I did say that he got injured running away from a boar on his ranch, according to him, as one of his injury concerns uh, last year uh, as to why he was out because he fractured his ankle running away from a boar. Can't make this up, folks. So my assumption was, okay, he went out partying. They can't track him. He's he's around somewhere. His agent's going to contact him. Only to find out later on in the game that uh, the Mets were later contacted by Cespedes' agent. And Cespedes had decided to opt out of the remainder of the baseball season. Now. Again, from my perspective, the rationale behind this is Cespedes was on a prorated contract to begin with. So Cespedes needed to have a number of plate appearances in order to fulfill the uh, vast majority of that contract to get up to the prorated remainder of $7 million. He was only scheduled to make $4 million this year prorated. Yes, I know some of you are listening to that saying, Hey, that's good money. I'd sign me up for four mil. But, again, in the lives of athletes, uh, those are very different numbers. So, in in light of everything that's going on, what I figured happened was Cespedes saw that he was getting benched, didn't like the fact that he was getting benched, was not happy about the current living situations, dealing with the Mets and everything else, and just decided, you know what? The amount of money I'm getting for this is not nearly worth the hassle. I'm just going to opt out because we've got outbreaks all across the league as well. You know, screw it. It's not even worth it at this point if I'm going to get benched and there's no chance of me getting those uh, additional incentives. Because, again, folks, we do have outbreaks amongst the Marlins and the Cardinals. We don't. We still don't even know what the true extent of the Cardinals' outbreak is. We know uh, the, there's been t- uh, positive cases with the Phillies as well, which is why the Phillies couldn't play uh, until uh, uh, what's coming on later tonight against the Yankees. But you know, there, there's just issues all over the place right now in baseball. So it is entirely reasonable to assume that there is some. It, uh, COVID speculation as to why Cespedes would opt out. Now, I have to say, to the Mets' credit, because they didn't get much credit in the media, and media trashed how the Mets respond to this, to the Mets' credit, the press conference they did afterwards, because I do believe the Mets were trying to shame uh, Cespedes originally when they put out that statement that he was missing, I didn't think they realized that people were going to assume that he was actually in danger of dying or anything. I, I thought they thought people were going to react that, oh man, I can't believe he blew off the team in this way. Uh, so they did some damage control, in my opinion, and talked about how they, you know, were hoping for the best and, you know, just glad to hear that he's okay uh, and so on and so forth and, and well wishes and, you know, obviously understanding of his decision to opt out through the COVID. Here's the reason why they needed to do that. Because... 
you have to at least give the appearance of looking sympathetic as an organization because not everyone looks at this through a sports lens. And I'll get to that in a little bit. However, the New York media interpreted that press conference by the Mets as full of fluff and a joke because they looked at it as Cespedes quit on his team, didn't like getting benched, and used COVID as a lame excuse as to why he was going to quit on the season and his teammates, and criticized the Mets for not going harder after Cespedes in the post-game press conference. Here's the reason why I say you can't look at this merely through a sports lens anymore in the fishbowl that is society at the moment due to the pandemic. The national news got wind of the Cespedes story and went off on a tangent about Cespedes opting out due to COVID concerns. They didn't talk about his performance. They didn't care about his performance. The fact that he left the team in the middle of the night and opted out due to COVID because he had second thoughts and reservations, per Cespedes' statement, that's what the national news story cycle went with. They went with additional concerns about COVID because Major League Baseball has additional positive tests beyond the Marlins because obviously you had uh, uh, the uh, the clubhouse staff from the Phillies that got infected through the recklessness of Major League Baseball to begin with. We'll talk about that in a little bit. but uh, And then we had the, uh, the members of the Cardinals. We still don't know how many. We got at least four, but the fact that they're saying that there are more positive cases on suing I'm thinking we may be we may have another outbreak and be and be close to double digits with the Cardinals. But in light of everything going on with baseball, the national news media caught wind of Cespedes' story and took it in a completely different context. So that if the Mets had gone in the way the New York sports media wanted the Mets to go in, the Mets would have been crushed so badly on a national scale that without question. The Wilpons would be dealing with a PR cycle from the news media all week long about this. Instead, this story should blow over in about two or three days. Instead of being a week-long cycle of having to apologize for Cespedes uh, for uh, not uh, not uh, respecting his concerns about his health, uh, when realistically... It probably is just due to him getting benched. I, I firmly believe that, you know, he took his ball and went home. But you can't say that in this current environment. You can't look at it merely through a sports lens. Otherwise, you are just opening yourself up for a can of worms. You are not going to be able to uh, put back in very easily. So the Mets, even though this circumstance was beyond their control in previous years, would have uh, 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 would have uh, taken a, a lit match uh, uh, to the uh, to the gasoline and let everything burn up, but it said they actually did a somewhat a decent job of containing the story that they initially started by trying to shame Cespedes in the out uh, outright, which is their normal protocol. Because when Cespedes emptied out his hotel room, the Mets had to have known that he opted out of his contract. Uh, and and left the team without telling him. Putting out the statement uh, to shame him ended up backfiring, but they were at least able to mitigate the damage because they could have at least kept this one 
a little bit more uh, contained than the way it actually played out. But like I said, this story could have been a lot uh, worse for the Mets because if it turned out that they crushed Cespedes for being selfish and quitting on his team and the national news media got that soundbite, oh boy, that would have been played throughout and the Mets would have been answering for it all week long, guaranteed. Guaranteed. So where does that leave baseball at the moment? Because as it stands, baseball has more positive cases than any other uh, any other sport at the moment. Because even with football, yes, we've had we've seen some positive cases, but uh, it's still not nearly to the extent. Basically, only college uh, uh, college sports have had uh, as many issues from positive cases as baseball. But baseball is actively trying to play right now, and again. Baseball is in very much a precarious spot of having the season completely implode on them. As it stands, due to Major League Baseball's inability to exercise basic common sense, the Phillies have not played baseball in over a week now. Because after that game on last Sunday with the Marlins, when they knew the Marlins had positive cases, let me... Uh, Let me say that again. Major League Baseball knew the Marlins had positive cases amongst players and still allowed players that hadn't fully been tested uh, uh, tested yet because, again, they had some positive tests tests, uh, come through, but they didn't retest the players after the positive test came through. They still decided to play the game anyway. Because of that, reckless decision and not pulling the game off then because again no one from major league baseball has actually been adequately able to explain how that game last sunday between the phillies and marlins was allowed to play when they knew there were positive tests they were they're saying it was communication breakdown since the communication breakdown we had additional positive tests for clubhouse members of the phillies which meant that so, uh, somehow it transmitted from h- however it, it uh, whatever was a uh, close proximity to some of the Marlins players or some of the player uh, Phillies players were close to the Marlins players and then it, it, it inherently transmitted to uh, the clubhouse staff. We got positive cases regardless directly resulting from that game. Now, as it stands, there have been no positive cases amongst the Phillies players, but the rationale being exercised is additional caution as to why the Phillies games were suspended the entire week. Now, here's the problem with that logic. The Cardinals had positive cases come up, and they were only postponing games one day at a time. The Phillies were postponed outright. So there doesn't seem to be much rhyme or reason as to what evaluation criteria is being used. And the issue was that inherent to everything going on, their enforcement is so lackadaisical in terms of having a structured game plan that, again, Major League Baseball could say they have over 100 pages of documentation as to what the protocol should be, but they've been playing it by ear ever since uh, the Marlins situation uh, spawned out. So right now, as it stands, we've got the Phillies missing a number of games. 
You got the Marlins obviously uh, not playing. And you had, uh, as a result, some games between uh, Baltimore not playing out. So you had a number of teams not playing directly impacted uh, by uh, the lack of playing time. And so with the Cardinals-Brewer series uh, essentially getting postponed, the Phillies are only now coming back tonight to play the Yankees. And with weather uh, expected to be terrible for tomorrow on Tuesday, you know, again, you're going to be missing a ton of games. And again, I keep saying this. Major League Baseball ran this risk once they refused. Well, I wouldn't say refused. They say they uh, Major League Baseball blamed the union for rejecting the bubble idea. The fact that Major League Baseball couldn't push the bubble idea, but were able to push prorated salaries, I have a feeling that the the, the story is much more akin to the union tried to use uh, the bubble format as a rationale for getting additional pay, Major League Baseball just said no. So Major League Baseball really only has themselves to blame because there were ways of getting a bubble format implemented, and now they're at risk of the season essentially being canceled in less than a month because Rob Manfred, uh, uh, MLB commissioner, has already prepped uh, broadcast networks reportedly to have alternative programming in place in case there's another outbreak, because they may be forced to cancel the season within the next two weeks. And in some cases, they said the nightmare scenario could have happened uh, within uh, uh, a couple of days. So, again, baseball is in such a precarious position. You got a number of teams that, yeah, could compete. But as soon as some of these other teams start falling by the wayside in terms of the loss column, I'm sorry, there's going to be greater, greater need to strictly monitor the uh, the actions and behaviors of players because some folks are just going to be looking at it and just saying, kind of going through the motions, saying, you know what, I, we're out of it. Why am I going through these strict adherences? I, I, can, I might as well just opt out the rest of the year. And guess what? There's, there's a very real danger. Uh, that baseball is running here at the moment because now you've got players that may just decide this isn't worth it. We're not winning anything this year and we're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, you could hope that some guys end up uh, being model employees, but that's not always the case in the, in the workforce. So it only strains uh, uh, the supply chain even further when you have a disgruntled workforce. So, I'm just leaving it out there, folks, that at the present rate baseball is going, there's a very real scenario, and I would say it's 30-70, 30 being the season actually completes. But at at best, I give the baseball a 30% chance of actually finishing out this year because I see way too many pitfalls that could come about in the next couple of weeks that give baseball serious pause to say, logistically, we can't make this work without further concessions from the players, and the players just saying, no, we're, we're not going down this route, and just calling it a day. So, not to sound like a doubter and, and, a, and a Debbie Downer, but, you know, there's just a lot of moving parts right now, 
and nothing quite uh, lines up with uh, the fact that uh, we are going to be seeing uh, positive news coming from MLB uh, in the short-term future. I think we're going to be seeing a, a number of positive cases, and then it comes down to the contact tracing and how long some of those teams are going to be uh, 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 team members and uh, players going to be out for. Because, again, in order to properly monitor everything, you got to be able to see what's going on. So every case is going to be different. So moving on, uh, we're going to get into the NBA bubble in just a moment. So uh, going to take a quick uh, break here, and then we'll circle right back with some uh, NBA news and updates. Stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. The Fantasy Throwdown Podcast will be right back after our sponsors pay the bills. Welcome back to the show. Hope you got your popcorn ready. All right. Turning to the NBA now, what have we learned about the NBA bubble thus far? There's still no defense. Offense is way, way up. And because of the lack of distractions, i.e. groupies and other entertainment venues, the energy level for players seems to be quite high. So you're getting far more high-paced matchups, so the overs have been hitting in these game totals at a record clip. Over 85% of the games thus far in the bubble so far, and, uh, you know, we've we've got, uh, we've played through for a couple of days now, so we're, we're, we're near, uh, you know, obviously it's a select size, but, you know, you've got 17 out of 20 games thus, uh, thus far uh, hitting the over. So, I I have to say that you know in in terms of where uh, we got to be kind of looking forward uh, on this is you got to be looking to kind of target from at least from a fantasy perspective looking to target the teams that are not very good and will still be playing in these slates. So in in that respect, you know, uh, in terms of teams, I would be looking to target. You're going to be looking at teams like the Nets. Uh, you know, Brooklyn ha- is basically playing a JV squad. <laughs> there, there's a, there's no, uh, there's no if ands or buts about it. it you know, uh, <laughs> Kyrie and Durant and Spencer Dinwiddie's not there. Uh, the, the, like hardly anyone's there for the Nets at this point for the bubble. So I would be targeting the Nets. I am absolutely targeting the Wizards. Bradley Beal opted out as well. Uh, so you've got a number of teams that uh, are susceptible. Uh, don't play any defense. Phoenix, definitely target them. And, uh, of course, uh, the Hornets, uh, you know, with, uh, I, I'm saying Hornets. I mean Pelicans. Uh, I, I automatically see New Orleans, and I'm, I'm, uh, I automatically associate them with uh, – uh, their old designation of the Charlotte Hornets, but be that as it may, the Pelicans, you know, woeful defensive units only gets exacerbated further in the NBA bowl. And one thing that people uh, thought might be an issue, but, you know, I thought it from the outset, 
being in this much smaller NBA court environment uh, that's different from uh, from a normal NBA arena uh, because it's, it's far more compact. The depth perception is that much easier for shooters. It's a much tighter arena, so when you don't have the large crowds that you're looking into, it's a lot easier to be a three point shooter. Uh, so uh, I, I'm like from my standpoint again. Uh, teams aren't playing defense, but from an outside shooting perspective, the shooters have not been impacted all that much by the uh, by the bubble environment. In fact, uh, it's it's just as high, if not higher. Uh, so again, limited sample size, but it's not surprising why uh, the scoring is up because it, it is a case of you're getting both. Uh, uh, you're, you're getting uh, you're getting uh, the best of both worlds for, if you're an offensive player because a you're more rested because you're not traveling b you're playing a bunch of teams that know they really aren't supposed to be in this environment and uh, to be quite frank are, are kind of checked out uh, you know they want to put up stats just to look good for scouts but you know outside of that they're not going to go out of their way to be uh, 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 to be uh, putting uh, a max effort and possibly getting themselves injured because you already saw what happened to poor Jonathan Isaac for the, the the Magic. He blew out his ACL in a meaningless game, and you, know, you don't want to say uh, you bl- uh, you got injured in a meaningless game, but realistically, the game the Magic were in was about as meaningless as it gets uh, uh, towards the end of the year. The Magic weren't making the playoffs. Uh, you know, mathematically speaking, their chances of making it were slim. That's why, uh, you know, even uh, even in their current environment, yeah, the Magic technically are in the playoffs because the East is so bad, but it's by default they're in the playoffs, uh, basically because of how the, bad the East was. Uh, you know, the Magic really have no business being uh, in the bubble. Uh, you know, they're they're technically the seventh, seventh seed. Maybe they'll end up being the eighth seed, depending on what the Nets do. But the Magic really shouldn't be in here. The Wizards shouldn't be in there. I mean, uh, I already told you that the Nets weren't. <laughs> the Nets, <laughs> that's like how <laughs> how the Wizards made it into the bubble again. It, it, it is more uh, uh, of a hilarity of consequences than anything else. Uh, how some of these teams got uh, got in, but you know, uh, as it stands, it, you know they had to finish out some of these games. So it is what it is, and some of these teams in the West still mathematically had a chance. Uh, so that's why the Wizards still technically had to be in the bubble because mathematically. They still had a chance of making the playoffs, uh, but these bubble teams uh, that are really there just for the experience, I guess, uh, and showing solidarity, they're going to be sent out of here eventually, and that's when the real uh, drama begins, in, uh, because you may think that I'm talking about playoff basketball. No, I'm talking about the drama of NBA players bringing their friends and loved ones into the bubble and hoping that the friends and loved ones don't don't mess anything up and violate protocols because I could I could see it now where family dynamics start playing uh, an effect on how the NBA bubble holds up. 
this is going to be a very tricky balance to maintain for the NBA. Again, this is going to stretch out for three months. The bubble, in theory, is the best way of actually continuing sports uh, as we know it in the middle of this pandemic for the U.S. because of the rising case counts. No matter who wants to tell you otherwise, the case counts are rising in the U.S. at the moment. Uh, You know, the only way to kind of contain everything is in a bubble environment. But it still relies upon human behavior to drive all of this. So as some of these teams start vacating, family members are going to start coming into the bubble. And it's going to be that much more precarious to make sure that everyone adheres to the rules. So, again... That's why I say life gets interesting in the bubble as these teams go away. Now, who are the players that I would say you need to be looking out for in the bubble that you aren't well aware of? Because obviously everyone knows LeBron and uh, Kawhi and all the big names. But here are the guys you should be looking at in the bubble that you probably don't know too well. First off, I'll... I'll start off with uh, the Bullets, uh, well, I should say the Wizards, but uh, from my recollection, I, I still think of them as the Bullets. Uh, but uh, for the Wizards, you got Troy Brown Jr. being the star of the team now with no Bradley Beal. You got a terrible team from a fantasy perspective versus real life. Real life, he's he's a, he's a solid, a good player. Uh, he's... He's developing his game. It's still going to take him some time. But from a fantasy perspective, Troy Brown Jr. is a fantastic play because he's a former number one uh, uh, first-round pick, and he has all the volume allocated to him in a dilapidated Washington squad that's lacking scores. Troy Brown is going to get a ton of volume to play around with. So that's someone I'd be targeting from a DFS perspective Every slate I get. Another player I'd be looking at because of volume. TJ Warren of the Pacers. He dropped 50 over the weekend. There are more games to come like that. Not necessarily 50 point games. But I can definitely see some 30 burgers. Some 40 burgers. Because the Pacers. With Oladipo still kind of a question mark. Brogdon still kind of a question mark. And Demontis Sabonis out uh, for the rest of the season with a foot injury, the Pacers have to play a small ball type lineup. And so much like the Celtics, the ball is going to be free flowing around multiple guys that can create shots off the dribble. TJ Warren can do that. So you're just the same way you saw Jason Tatum have his coming out party two years ago for the Celtics. TJ Warren is in that very similar spot for the Pacers. So I like uh, the Pacers in terms of fantasy value in production because, you know, again, they're fighting for a higher playoff seed. They can actually do uh, make some noise in the playoffs. And unlike Philly, they are a complete dysfunctional mess. So, again, you've got teams that are actually looking as though they may uh, do some legitimate work in the playoffs. Now, why did I make fun of Philly? Because the issue with the Sixers, and it's the same issue that I, I see with that squad, even uh, coming out of uh, uh, coming out of the five, uh, well, not five months, a four-month stretch where we had no basketball. 
this team still has no identity. Still doesn't have much in the way of chemistry. They have so much talent. But, man, it is very hard to take this Sixers team seriously when it's feed the ball to Joel Embiid and then figure out the rest of the offense the other 80% of the time because they can't figure out what to do with uh, 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 Ben Simmons. They don't know who their point guard is going to be. Now it's going to be Shake Milton running the point instead of Simmons. Uh, try to play Simmons uh, as a as a stretch four and work it from there. But the truth of the matter is, is that even when they had Jimmy Butler, uh, Simmons, uh, Embiid, and Tobias Harris, they still needed Jimmy Butler there to be the closer because they didn't have a set offense. Philly is so dysfunctional that even in any playoff series, I have to make them the underdog. Because Jimmy Butler went to the Miami Heat with less talent. And the Heat are ranked higher than the Sixers. There is no way that Heat team is more talented than the Sixers. But because the Sixers have no identity, it is very hard, game to game, for that Sixers team to show any level of consistency. So, when they actually have to go into a playoff series, man... I really don't want to be playing the Sixers, but at the same time, I feel like I can beat the Sixers in a seven-game series because if you want to tell me that the Sixers can play coherent basketball for a seven-game series, be my guest. But I have the Sixers have yet to display that ability at any point in the season. The longest win streak for the Sixers this year was four games, which, yeah, could win you a series. But can they actually, uh, can they, uh, w- but what was the best stretch that they had for a 12-game span, a 15-game span? They've never been able to put it together consistently, and that's the problem. When you're in the playoffs, you need to have some level of consistency game to game. With the Sixers, you don't have any of that. It's just all slapdash. So, again, you can play the Sixers in DFS lineups. I'm not going to say tell you no, but... From a pricing perspective, it's just unappealing. So, to me, what it really comes down to is you play bad teams uh, in the bubble. You sprinkle in a couple of superstars. So, whether you got Giannis or Harden or Luka Doncic, uh, you know, uh, obviously you got LeBron and AD uh, as possibilities, uh, whatever. But uh, you sprinkle in a couple of stars. Realistically, you're just going to be mining for all these teams that are playing really bad teams and taking advantage of the fact that no one's really playing defense. So the so the bad defensive teams just got progressively worse in this bubble. And, and that's the way to kind of look at it from an NBA basketball standpoint. Now, as strictly from a fan perspective, is it nice seeing the bubble actually work as intended? Because from a presentation standpoint, yes. Because unlike hockey, and I'll get to hockey uh, shortly as well, because i got to talk about my Rangers, uh, the issue for hockey is that the NBA actually thought about the overall presentation. So having the virtual uh, fans in the seats, uh, uh, presentation-wise, you know, at least the pumped-in crowd noise doesn't feel as artificial as it does for things like soccer. It's actually better in some respects in terms of overall sports broadcast that we've seen for other leagues. Again, 
the creepy virtual crowds for baseball being one of them, where it's just like, who came up with this idea? Because this looks so tacky in execution that I could tell you didn't put much thought into it. Versus what the NBA did was basically have the virtual fans uh, use Zoom to be involved on the broadcast, and then you sell the tickets to be the virtual fan uh, in, in the bubble arena. Brilliant marketing strategy. NBA got it right, unlike most of these other leagues that botched it uh, in some uh, respects uh, to the overall presentation. So in terms of how I think the bubble eventually going to shake out, uh, the Lakers should lock down uh, the number one seed in the West. I still think the Clippers uh, can win that series in a seven-game series. I got to see it from uh, uh, Davis just to see if if uh, if if uh, LeBron is going to get that additional boost in the playoffs that he hasn't really had since uh, Kyrie's been gone. That, that that's part of the problem is that uh, you know it's uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer that uh, you know the uh, the Lakers are the overall favorite. I I can't say that the Lakers are the overall favorite because. Uh, they they did get taken to them by uh, Toronto the other night. There are holes in the game now. Can they get up for it against against the Clippers? Absolutely, because we saw again my whole uh, uh, critique on uh, uh, Paul, uh, <laughs> Paul George's. You know, in big games, Paul George uh, Paul George uh, does not have the dog in him and disappears, but. From a construction standpoint, the Clippers are built to give LeBron a ton of trouble. They're not built to give Anthony Davis trouble. So, if AD actually plays to his potential in the playoffs, yeah, then we're talking something with the Lakers. But until I actually see AD do it in the playoffs, we got some some big question marks because I, I think the physicality gets to him once it comes to postseason. And by the time we get to the postseason... These teams are going to start getting serious about playing actual defense. So we're going to see very, fairly soon uh, how uh, this uh, this starts sorting out. But, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, some of these other teams like the Bucks, uh, you know, they, they are technically the favorite according to Vegas because the East is much weaker than the West. But it doesn't mean that the Bucks don't have – their own concerns because a they gotta stay healthy and b the Celtics are still right there. The Celtics, unlike the Sixers, have the consistency that can give a team like the Bucks a tremendous amount of trouble. And and I I actually have to give Toronto credit as well. Uh, Toronto knows how to guard Giannis. So again, this kind of comes down to the fact of the execution standpoint versus what uh, the overall long-term game planning ends up being. I I think at the end of the day, you know, when it comes right down to it, we just don't quite know uh, how this is going to play out in terms of the playoffs. But uh, in terms of the actual environment of the bubble, that's not the distraction. It's it's going to come down to the actual play 
on the court, in my opinion. Uh, the bu- the bubble, you know, as I said, the biggest issue with the bubble that they're going to run into is as uh, 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 teams leave, family members come in. Family members aren't nearly as obligated to adhere to the rules as the players are. That's where I see the concern for the bubble. But from everything else, in the execution standpoint, NBA bubble has been on point. It's what the NFL should be looking into as uh, and what baseball should have done. NFL not looking into the bubble is beyond reckless. And this news story about the NFL possibly moving up the opt-out deadline is just adding fuel to the fire that the NFL uh, couldn't give to you know about uh, the actual players themselves. It's just uh, one of those situations where it's clearly obvious that there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. So, without uh, much further ado, we're going to take a quick break again, uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit of hockey uh, to close out the show. Don't go anywhere. The Fantasy Throwdown Podcast will be right back after our sponsors pay the bills. Welcome back to the show. Hope you got your popcorn ready. All right, now coming back into the other bubble going on in sports, and that is in the NHL. So uh, the NHL has been operating uh, in this bubble of capacity for a few days now, but started immediately with playoff uh, hockey. Now, uh, the issue that I'm seeing, and, you know, the games have been competitive by and large, a, a good a good contest back and forth, but one of the most glaring issues that we're actually seeing is that, at least from what I can tell, and again, this is early because we've only had uh, three days of hockey uh, being back, but from what I can tell, Western Conference looks much better than the Eastern Conference uh, uh, series. And the the only thing I could rationalize with that is the fact that the Western Conference teams actually got to skate more. Uh, I'm just looking at the speed in which that the Western Conference teams are skating at and being able to uh, uh, move and transact. The Western Conference teams look better. And that was not the case this year. The Eastern Conference teams were better than the West this year. It, it wasn't a question mark either. The East was better than the West this year as a whole. But coming out of, out of uh, the, the layoff and now looking at these initial uh, set of bubble games, the West looks better. I, 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 I'll, just, uh, I'll just say, like, the quality of the games looked better from a Western Conference standpoint. From a speed, uh, just transition, tactics, Western Conference looks better. Who's going to win the Stanley Cup? Complete, uh, complete, uh, complete guess. Uh, because you know, Colorado and St. Louis played a fantastic game, decided by point one second on the clock in the third period. Uh, Colorado gets the goal in Ron Robin play. Uh, so the way the way it works in hockey is that the top four seeds uh, were in a round robin contest to determine uh, how the seedings were going to. Uh, work out in the next round uh but uh you know in terms of the actual uh 
breakdown of, uh, uh, of the seedings. Uh, so you had uh, the Capitals, the Lightning, Boston, and Philadelphia all vying for the top uh, four seeds uh, uh, in the East. In the West, you had Dallas, uh, uh, Vegas, uh, and then uh, the uh, Colorado Avalanche and the Saint, uh, defending champion St. Louis Blues uh, on the Western Conference side vying for uh, the top four uh, seeds in the round-robin format. And obviously, highest uh, point total from the games uh, uh, gets the overall uh, uh, overall seed in the respective conferences. But, you know, again, looking at the quality of the games, Western Conference looks better. They look sharper. And I partly I have to attribute that is to technically they had, you know, the uh, pandemic was not nearly as bad on the West Coast at the time. Uh, and so uh, some of these facilities were open earlier than in some cases. Case in point, I'm going to get to my New York Rangers. My New York Rangers uh, just lost earlier today, and it was one of the worst performances of the entire year. And the most distressing part about it is Rangers just got outplayed the entire way through. In the, uh, you know, in the 120 minutes that have been played so far uh, in, in this uh, uh, series uh, where the Rangers are down 0-2, I want to say that the Rangers won maybe 10 minutes. 10 minutes of play. And the 120 minutes that have been played thus far. It's been all Carolina by and large. Outskating, hustling, just execution-wise. Carolina just looks sharper. The Rangers still look sluggish. Uh, I, I don't know what else to say about it. The Rangers look absolutely sluggish. Uh, you know, we, we thought maybe from the preseason game... It, it could have been just, uh, uh, I thought initially it might have been just the Rangers not wanting to go too hard against uh, the Islanders and risk getting an injury. Oh, coincidentally enough, apparently, even though the Rangers weren't going hard in that game, Igor Shesterkin got injured in the game against the Islanders, which is why Henrik Lundqvist has played the, la- uh, the last two games of the playoffs. Here's the problem with that. Uh, as much as I love Hank... Lundqvist cannot play the puck whatsoever as a goalie. He's afraid of playing the puck. So when you have a, a physical team like Carolina uh, that's trying to play pressure hockey and forcing you to move the puck up the ice quickly, when you have a goalie that doesn't want to play the puck, you can't get the puck out of your own zone. So the Rangers basically are hemmed in the vast majority of the of force of play. So the force of play in this series has been generally concentrated on the Rangers not being able to get out of their own zone. So I would say a greater portion of the game has actually been played in the Rangers' end, and more specifically, in the Rangers' own third of the ice. Not good. That's why I'm saying, from a physicality standpoint, even when the Rangers are trying to be physical, they can't keep up the pace with Carolina because they're not physically, they don't seem to be ready to play this series. That's the distressing part about this. But I can't necessarily get too upset at the Rangers because, again, New York was the worst hit part of the country uh, for months on end. And, again, while the resume to play, everyone's been practicing, that time off, I'm sorry. I'm I'm clearly seeing it. Uh, again, in the quality of the play, I said it before. I'll say it again. I think the uh, Stanley Cup... If things don't dramatically improve, I think the the Cubs coming out of the West 
again this year. Because from what I've seen from the Eastern Conference teams, even the top four seeds, the top four seeds in the West look a lot sharper and better than the top four seeds in the East. Again, maybe these guys start working themselves into playoff hockey and, you know, and while they're getting healthy, conditioning-wise, they start improving and that they're they're a lot sharper and crisper as the playoffs uh, move along into the later rounds. But right now, from the start, the West looks better. It's just that simple. Right now, the Rangers are going to be playing a game uh, tomorrow night. Uh, so, quick turnaround, uh, uh, no, no, no day off. And I think the Rangers might be in danger of getting swept because, you know, from a stamina standpoint, I just didn't see it in the Rangers. I, I'm not sure if doing the de- uh, uh, a quick turnaround is going to do a whole lot of good because, to me, from a, a physical standpoint, Carolina's a lot sharper and fresher. It's obvious. The Rangers take, at a minimum, two to three shifts every period to actually get going. They can't start off 0-60, to and Carolina has jumped on them every single period to start the, uh, uh, to start uh, the, uh, to start each period. So, you know, Rangers have taken bad penalties in the first uh, uh, minute of each, uh, each period in this series. Again, part of it is pressure because... You know, when you got another team that's coming after you and they're faster and everything else, your first instinct is to hold and grab and clutch and try to do something else out a little bit outside because you can't compensate with what's going on. So right now the Rangers look outclassed and from a, like I said, from a purely objective standpoint, they are not nearly as in good shape as Carolina right now. And there are extenuating circumstances, but on the on the record book, it's still going to count as a playoff loss unless the Rangers get it together, and I'm not sure that they got enough time to uh, turn it around. So, uh, but like I said, from a quality of play standpoint, it hasn't been it hasn't been Stanley Cup level hockey yet. But uh, I will say that the uh, for uh, for the majority of the games, but I will say from the Western Conference side, the games have been good. They've been good. They, they like the like I said the the West is ready to go. The East has some catching up to do. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna see how the, some of these teams start picking it up again. Uh, you know, right now we got uh, the Penguins uh, uh, playing uh, uh, Montreal. Montreal jumped on the Penguins early uh, to take a one nothing series lead, and it's best of five. So again, that's why I say the Rangers could get swept uh, uh, tomorrow night because of uh, everything going on. But uh, you know. I, I look at this and I say and I say that you know there's a very real chance with everything going on that the that the Stanley Cup uh, goes back to the Western Conference again because they just look sharper right now and I think it might be a conditioning thing because of uh, the layoff and which teams had access to facilities during the lockdown certain states weren't completely locked down compared to the Northeast so you know some teams do have an advantage. Uh, but we're going to see. We are we're going to see. It's still very much early in the game, uh, so we're going to see how this uh, this all transpires. But my initial thoughts, I, I just looked at it. I'm like, West looks West looks good. West looks like they haven't missed a beat in the East. Definitely, the the the, the uh, from a talent talent level is still there, but from an execution standpoint and uh, just from where they were. Earlier this uh, earlier this year, 
uh, of how they were playing, noticeable difference. Without question, noticeable difference. All right. And finally, to cap off the show, uh, uh, some of you are going to be looking for my mea culpa to Arsenal because I said that Arsenal had no chance of winning the FA Cup. And I've said this repeatedly uh, to some of you uh, listening on this podcast. So let me just say this. Arsenal did win the FA Cup against Chelsea on Saturday. I'll say this as an Arsenal fan. It was a unique and strange feeling knowing that Arsenal was getting the Manchester United treatment because I've never seen Arsenal get the benefit of so many calls, so lopsided in our own favor, where we weren't getting called for pretty much anything, and and Chelsea was getting called for basically everything under the sun. You know, I'm looking at this, I'm saying, wow, this is what it's like being a Man United fan. So for the Chelsea fans complaining about the officiating, you're absolutely right. You can you can complain about the officiating. It was it was absolutely terrible and lopsided in our uh, in Arsenal's favor. But Chelsea didn't play well. Arsenal didn't play great either because you know when you don't have a back line, it's hard to say that your team actually played well. Uh, they played well given the circumstances. But when Christian Pulisic pulls uh, a hamstring after. Uh, Cesar Aspilicueta pulls a hamstring for Chelsea as well. Uh, you know, you've got two substitutions you have to make right there. Uh, uh, I'm sure uh, I'm sure Frank Lampard did not have anywhere in his mind that he was going to have to pull Christian Pulisic or Aspilicueta as part of his game plan. So, while I do question the starting 11 selection, because to me, Giroud is a second-half closer at this stage of his career, he doesn't have the pace to give David Luiz trouble. I thought Abraham was going to be the selection and just have Abraham just run straight at Luis all day long and try to draw a penalty. I thought that was going to be the game plan. And then you bring in uh, Giroud uh, to be the closer in the second half. I'm, I'm genuinely thankful that uh, Lampard didn't go that route. Obviously, uh, I wanted uh, Arsenal to win the FA Cup because uh, at least it guarantees us a spot in playing in... Europa next year, which we weren't going to be able to do uh, if we had missed out on uh, uh, missed out on winning the FA Cup, and missing out on playing Europa means even more millions of dollars uh, being missed out on uh, for player signings uh, in in the offseason window, which is going to be a very quick turnaround because the Premier League is starting back up uh, again, even with uh, the Project Restart. They're not delaying on the restart of the season uh, for next season. So uh, the Premier League is resuming back again in less than 50 days. So quick turnaround. Folks getting right back to it because summer vacation ain't much of a vacation this year in the pandemic anyway. So it's not like guys are going off on a major holiday uh, the way that uh, we're accustomed to seeing in the past uh, to begin with. So uh, with that being said, uh, Arsenal uh, gets the benefit of the doubt. Now, uh, in terms of who has the most to lose, uh, because we have the most expensive game in sports coming up tomorrow afternoon. Uh, just, uh, I believe, kickoffs around two forty-five uh, tomorrow afternoon. We have the English League Championship 
uh, final uh, playoff spot uh, to be determined because the way the champ, uh, uh, the the uh, the the way the uh, <laughs> the English Championship works is that the top three teams get promoted into the Premier League uh, <coughs> and uh, uh, move forward to replace the, te- the three teams that got relegated. So the teams that got relegated this year for the Premier League were Watford, which, again, I told you Watford screwed the pooch in the worst way possible, firing Nigel Pearson two uh, games for the left of the season. I thought Watford could have easily taken points off of Arsenal if they had Nigel Pearson in charge. Uh, he wasn't there, and they got smoked. Uh, then you had Bournemouth, who had the worst luck imaginable uh, as a team, uh, because you know every time that they tried to do something, something just it it, it just was not Bournemouth's year. They either had injury, a VAR issue, because the team that did survive, and and to be perfectly honest, actually I'm going to go off on this tangent here. We actually had. Because no one cares about Norwich. Nor- Nor- Norwich Norwich quit on this season a while ago, even before Project Restart. So we're going to get into how Bournemouth got relegated. Bournemouth's relegation is due to Aston Villa getting a point against West Ham. How did Aston Villa survive, besides Arsenal losing in one of the dumbest fashions imaginable, how did Aston Villa uh, uh, get those additional points? To, uh, because Aston Villa was done and dusted weeks ago. So how did Aston Villa actually get the, the point they needed uh, to stay up? It goes back to the loss Aston Villa should have had against Sheffield United. Because Sheffield United beat Aston Villa, but... And I, I still say this because... It, even watching this game uh, on replay, I still don't understand how no referee on the field couldn't see that Sheffield United had scored off of a set piece because the ball clearly crossed the line. There are massive bodies around, but any referee on the field and the linesman should be able to see that the ball crossed the, uh, the field of play. So regardless of that, three, uh, three officials missed the call. The replay official, the VAR official, who's supposed to be looking at this, doesn't bother to buzz the play to be reviewed because the re- uh, according to uh, the Premier League, the PGMOL, uh, who handles the refereeing, the, the VAR official was waiting to be buzzed in and because of the fact that the Hawkeye technology being used for all uh for all goal sensors didn't go off which they admitted was a mistake it's the first time it ever happened because the Hawkeye system didn't buzz in the VAR ref didn't feel it necessary to at least take a closer look at the play everyone that could see it objectively just normal play could see that that ball crossed the line if you're just looking at it normally you know that that uh, that that ball was scored so not only did Sheffield United miss out on a chance at Europe with the three points that they would have had because of that call, but also if Villa lost that game, Bournemouth stays up and Villa goes down instead. That's really what it came down to. No one's going to say that because no one's going to want to blame the technology and, and the VAR official 
for a team getting relegated. But I will say this point blank. VAR and its current format of it being an optional kind of thing, we rely on technology. The the lack of quality refereeing in the Premier League is abhorrent. And it's only getting worse, I'm afraid. So by essentially having just clear and obvious errors being missed by everyone involved. We literally have a team getting relegated as a result of it. Now, Bournemouth is not blameless at all because Bournemouth had their chances. Bournemouth just doesn't have, uh, uh, just didn't invest enough in the team uh, to survive all the injuries that they had this year. So Bournemouth uh, and had some uninspired performances. Bournemouth, you know, they found themselves in the position. But did Bournemouth deserve to go down any more than some of these other teams that went down? No. In fact, I thought uh, Villa should have gone down uh, ahead of Bournemouth. Uh, There were a couple other teams that should have gone down ahead of Bournemouth. But, you know, like I said, Bournemouth had some bad, bad luck. But sometimes when you have bad luck and then bad decisions being made around you, uh, things can go sideways very quickly. And that's what happened to Bournemouth in this Premier League uh, season, you know. It is what it is at this point. Uh, uh, They've gone down, but, you know, I I look at it from the standpoint of uh, Bournemouth definitely deserved better than what they got, but sometimes that's the way it goes. All right, so that's going to do it for the show today. Uh, Thanks again uh, for listening. We've got more coming up uh, uh, just because, uh, the amount of activity going on. We got Champions League coming back up again, folks. So, uh, obviously, uh, the matchup people are looking for with Real Madrid and Man City, that's coming up uh, at, towards the end of the week. So, more to come in the world of sports. We're going to see what happens with baseball. Like I said, you got less than <laughs> like less than a 50-50 chance of the baseball season finishing. I got it more at 30% at this point because there's so much going sideways with baseball and not a clear direction as to uh, how they're going to fix things that, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely in for a wild ride uh, uh, the rest of the way through uh, as we, we try to work it day to day. But that's all for now, folks. Have a good one. And until next time, stay tuned. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.